Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. My guest is Fiona Snickers. Fiona, are you there? Hello. Fiona has just brought out an amazing new book called The School Gates, and I have to just say. I devoured this book in one sitting and then was really angry with myself for having finished it so, so quickly. To give you a little bit of background, Fiona is a really best-selling local South African author and she's also an award-winning author. Fiona, I think you write in just about every genre available. How do you manage that? Yeah, I do like my genre hopping. Um, I started out my career writing young adult books and then I moved into um, sort of romantic suspense and uh, thrillers, um, then a couple of murder mysteries, and now The School Gates is what I would probably say um, would be maybe book club fiction, uh, literary book club fiction. Um, I think I manage it because those are all genres that I enjoy reading myself. So I write the kind of books that I enjoy reading. And um, I've, I've noticed that you, you actually said you, you tend to write two or three books at the same time. Yes, that's right. Um, I used to find that I would get bored. If I was writing just one book at a time, then my mind would be hopping off to the next book idea, um, like someone chasing a shiny new object. And <laughs> the best thing I found was to let myself do that. So if there were three book projects that I was interested in, I would write them all at the same time. And it actually works for me. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for anyone else, but it does work for me. Well, it's definitely working for you um, with the number of, of books that you're bringing out and the awards that you're winning. Um, the School Gates is, um, you've, you've described it as um, part of a loose trilogy based on the Birchall sisters, the, the family, the Birchall family. The first yes. book was Now Following You. Um, I'm just, I can't actually remember what year that came out, but I remember it was an outstanding book. It's about the perils of social media. And that was about Jamie Birchall. And then you followed that up in 2017 with Spire, yes. which was about Carolyn Birchall, who's a doctor, and it takes place on a remote research station in Antarctica. And I really I highly recommend both of these. They are outstanding books. But obviously today we want to talk about The School Gates, which is your latest book. So I know we've, we've only just started. We'll get into the book. Let's just take a short break. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. I'm back with my guest, Fiona Snickers, um, a best-selling, award-winning South African author, and we are talking about her brand new book, The School Gates. So your publisher, Mojaji, describes the book in a nutshell as a skewering critique of private school privilege through the eyes of a dance teacher. Give me a bit more detail on what The School Gates is actually about. Okay, well, it's about the third of the Birchall sisters, um, Ella Birchall, who is burnt out. She has been dancing professionally on stages all over the world for years, 
and she's now burnt out and exhausted. She's also suffering from an eating disorder, and she just has to remove herself from that highly pressured world. And she comes back to South Africa, which is her country of origin, and she moves to a quiet seaside town on the KZN North Coast. It's a fictional town, which I called Pineapple Beach, and she is basically just trying to rest and recover from the last few years of her life. But she also needs to support herself, obviously. Um, and she gets offered a position teaching dance at a private school for a very attractive salary. And she takes it up immediately because it seems like such a great opportunity for her. But she very quickly runs into problems with the expectations of the private school parents who run the school. Um, it's a for-profit school part of a greater chain of schools, and they are very, very focused on the achievements of the children. And her priorities as a teacher very quickly start to clash with what she sees as the priorities of the parents. And that's where the conflict of the novel arises from. As I said, Mojaji described it as a critique, a skewering critique of private school privilege. All know and you know, it's bandied about often about private schools and private school families, private school children, helicopter parents. But you've taken a very tongue-in-cheek um, view of this. And, I mean, these are private school parents on steroids. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they really are taking it to the next level. And while I was very much aware of exaggerating somewhat for effect, I could also point to incidents that I had encountered or heard of where private school parents really have taken it to the next level in real life. And several of the incidents that I mention have happened in real life and will probably be very recognizable to your readers, but perhaps not all at the same school, in the same grade, among the same group of parents. But they are all in some way or other drawn from life, from things I saw or experienced um, or was told about because having been a private school parent for many years, I'm also friends with private school parents from other schools and have heard some really hair-raising stories over the years. And it was just a, a huge amount of fun for me to take all these larger-than-life stories and turn them into one novel. And, I mean, reading the book it is a lot of fun. Um, you know, reading it, and, and many of us, whether our children are at private schools or not, we do know people who have children at private schools. We, we interact with these people and engage with them, whether it's in real life, online. Um, and reading this, it's a whole lot of fun because you can't help thinking to yourself, oh, my goodness, what are they going to do next? And your particular focus in the book is a group of 10-year-old girls. And, I mean, just to give an example, one of the mothers is already nurturing her child because she just knows that this child is destined to be head girl. No matter what, um, at the cost of all and everything, even if the child is, is absolutely miserable, which she, the mother is not interested in knowing about, hearing about, 
Um, and, you know, children who, who have sport injuries and whose parents insist that there is nothing wrong with them and they will go from doctor to doctor until they find a doctor who will write that letter to say the child is absolutely fine and can continue doing their sport or their dance or we were talking about um, the, the lengths that these private school parents go to in order to get their children to achieve what they, the parents, want them to achieve, not necessarily yes. the children. And it's not only to the detriment of their children, but there's a line in the book that just jumps out at me that says there's a difference between wanting what's best for your children and mowing down everyone in your path to get it. Right. Yeah, that, that just to me, that, that wraps it all up in a nutshell because you, nothing else is important other than getting what you want for your child. Yeah, and the scary thing for me, um, having children in that private school environment was how infectious this ethic becomes. Um, it's very hard to remain distanced from it when everybody else is competing so frantically for the best in sport and academic and cultural, it's very hard to remain detached. You find yourself getting swept up in it and starting to believe the hype. And if you're not careful, you will look around and suddenly see, wait, I am turning into that mom. I am turning into that parent. This is... If everybody is afraid of not achieving the best for their child, and it's very easy to get swept up in a kind of mania that totally loses sight of what is actually good for that particular child and in that particular phase in their life. And that was the scariest thing for me, where I would find myself buying into the hype and believing it and starting to push my children in directions that weren't necessarily the best for them. Um, and, and that, for me, was the most interesting. And that is what these mothers do. And they are not prepared to listen to children who don't necessarily want to go in the direction that their parents are pushing them in. But it was interesting to see the dynamic between the children themselves that you introduced into your story. Because I know, I know we often say that when a child says something people say, oh, that's not the child speaking. They've heard that at home or they've heard it somewhere else. Seeing the way you have created the the interaction between these children, it's like that mini-me version of their parents. Yes, I think we as parents don't even realize how much power we have over our children. And I've seen situations where children were naturally drawn to each other as friends and then had those friendships torn apart by a competitive edge that was introduced by the parents, not by the children themselves. And suddenly, kids that had got along beautifully started bullying or marginalizing or sidelining each other because they had been taught that this person cannot be your friend, she's not cool enough, she's not in the right group, or... She's a threat to you. She is your competition. You can't be too friendly with her. And, and that divisive edge I've seen introduced by parents into children's friendships. Mm-hmm. And I always think that's, that's such a shame. You know, children should be 
able to make friends with whoever they like and not take on the baggage of their parents in making those decisions. I fully agree with you. And I mean, you you had uh, twins in this book as well. And the one twin obviously is more dominant and puts down everything the other twin says. If the other twin expresses an opinion or doesn't like something that it's deemed appropriate to like, the other twin will say to her, oh, you're talking rubbish or that's not true and, you know, our mother won't allow that or it's it's even between siblings. Yes, that, that competitive edge can arise between siblings and even between siblings that are as close as twins ideally should be. Uh, but that competitiveness is introduced to them at an early age. And it's not just the parents. The schools themselves create a spirit of competition which is supposed to be healthy, but that, in my opinion, quite quickly becomes unhealthy and mm-hmm. overcompetitive at a very young age. I mean, these aren't little Olympians, you know, trying to compete for a, a place at the Tokyo Olympics. These are... Nine, ten, eleven-year-olds, they kids who shouldn't have such a high cutthroat level of competition at such a young age. Exactly. They haven't been allowed to be children, and they are still just children, but you've created that environment around them so cleverly that one can only feel sorry for them even the ones who think that they have it so much better than those other kids that they're looking down on. You know, and, and it's often the case. Those kids who the other children are talking about and who really are derisive about, they, they ensure that these kids are the target of their, their, their bullying and name-calling. Those are the kids who are often a lot happier they're more balanced, they're more, you know, they're, they're okay with their lives, but apparently in this environment, it's not okay to be okay. Yes, and I also noticed an interesting split between public and private schools, and there are certain public schools that are just as high-pressured and competitive as the private ones, but quite often a happy little low-pressure government school can be an ideal environment to raise a child in without massive amounts of pressure and without so much of the, the children's time being taken away from them. Um, something that I noticed as a mother is that children today have much less time just to be kids than we did. Their lives are so structured They go to school, then they have after-school activities, sometimes ending as late as 7 o'clock at night, and then you'd think they'd have the weekends to recover, but no. Uh, Even if the child is doing school netball, then on the weekend they're doing club netball and club hockey and club soccer, and all those clubs have their own uh, practice sessions and fixtures, and these children are busy seven days a week, sometimes for 12 to 14 hours a day, and they're supposed to fit in homework as well, and how that can possibly be considered a happy or normal or nurturing childhood for a kid Mm -hmm. is 
honestly more than I can fathom. Yeah, and to these parents, the most important thing is that the child needs to fit onto the right tier of the hierarchy, the hierarchy that the parents have created and the schools. Yes, absolutely. The hierarchies are very clear and very dominant and it somehow gets to matter too much to the parents where their children fit in on that hierarchy and where they themselves fit in in the hierarchy of the school. It all just becomes far too important, much more important than it should be. It's actually really frightening. I mean, you've you've created a story here around 10-year-old, 9-10-year-old children, 9-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, as you say, and they have parents who are just hell-bent on ensuring that their CVs are in tip-top shape. I mean, a child of that age shouldn't have or shouldn't need a CV, and that's all that matters to these parents. And as, as I've said, I mean, you, you've taken a tongue-in-cheek approach. This is, I mean, as you just say, you've based it on, on certain incidents that you've heard about or seen for yourself. But this is an exaggerated poetic license type of story. I mean, we're not, you know, it's, it's, it's fiction. So um, we need to bear that in mind when we're reading this book. And it, it's really enjoyable fiction. Yeah, it's, it's meant to be a laugh and it's meant to be fun and recognizable mm-hmm. to most of us. Um, and it's also meant to serve as a warning, um, just a reminder for us to keep some perspective and to remember how young our kids are and that um, we can really let things get out of control if we are not being very careful. And this book Absolutely. is a warning to be a little bit more mindful and careful with how we're raising our kids. And also just to look out for the signs and the signals and not not be swept along with it instead of noticing the alarm bells when they're ringing um, we shouldn't just switch off the alarm and turn over and carry on we need to be aware of those alarm bells when they um, are very clear yes definitely um, pay attention to what your children are saying to you um, how they appear um, and and yes a, a child is suddenly walking with a limp that is a warning signal. That is something that should be taken seriously. And perhaps that kid shouldn't be forced into tomorrow's hockey tournament come hell or high water because it's so utterly important to the parents. Um, and just as pain is a warning signal of the body, so a child's general happiness and mental health is a warning signal to how they are, how they're coping, how they're managing in this very stressful life that we are all participating in. Oh, 100%. I want to move away from the subject of these kids and their hierarchy and their CVs and chat about another theme that ran through the book. But let's take a short break. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. And I'm back chatting to my guest Fiona Snickers and we have been talking about her new book The School Gates all about helicopter parents influential parents parents who will step on anyone and everyone to get their children to where they believe their children need to be but Fiona I want to divert from that topic there's another theme that lightly runs through your book and that's a theme of toxic masculinity in the form of Ella's ex-boyfriend, ex-manager, 
ex everything if she has her way. Um, Peter, who is a controlling villain. Tell me where Peter comes into the picture. Okay, yes. So as you say, um, Peter was her manager and managed her career as a dancer on the international stage and started influencing her life at a very young age. She was identified as a highly talented dancer in her teens and taken on by this manager who started controlling every aspect of her career. And then when she's about 20, they enter into a relationship as well. So they, he's now her boyfriend. They are no longer merely uh, manager and client. Um, they now are in an intimate relationship as well. And the iron control that he exerts over her career, he also extends to their relationship. He starts, for example, monitoring everything that she eats. Every bite of food that she puts in her mouth, he comments on, he monitors, he... Um, Make, he tries to manage it so that she keeps her weight down. And this isn't something that is as common in the world of dancing as it used to be. It used to be that dancers had to be um, extremely skinny uh, to the point of arguably being unhealthy, and that is no longer the case. The world of dance now has space for dancers of all different body types, which is fantastic. So it's not a dancer thing. It is a Peter thing. It is this particular manager who believes that she needs to be as skinny as possible, uh, that that's how she looks her best, that's how he finds her attractive, and any little morsel of something in her mouth, any extra half kilo that she puts on is absolutely unacceptable. And soon... He no longer has to monitor her eating because she now has a full-blown eating disorder and she monitors her eating herself. And even if she tries to eat anything more than she should, um, according to Peter, her whole system sort of shuts down, her throat closes, and she can no longer physically swallow this thing that she's trying to eat. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a very specific kind of eating disorder, it has been nurtured and fostered by Peter, and she's hoping that having broken up with him and having ended his contract as a manager and moved to the other side of the world to get away from him, that he will no longer be an influence in her life. But this toxic masculinity, as you rightly call it, has had such an influence over her that it's a great struggle for her to free herself. And she hears her, in her head, she hears Peter's voice talking mm -hmm. to her, mm -hmm. uh, belittling things that she cares about, monitoring her eating. He doesn't have to be there physically to continue to control her because his voice is in her head still doing that. And later in the book, he also starts phoning her and starts trying to exert a more direct control over her life. So, yeah, that, that is a, um, an important theme of the book, as you say, and I think that watching Ella free herself from his influence is one of the more satisfying experiences in reading the book.
It definitely is. And also the way that you've, you've juxtaposed Peter and his toxic personality with the new man in her life, a man who she meets in Pineapple Beach where she lives, um, Ashton, who, apart from having his own issues, is not Peter. And that is the most important thing to Ella. The way the book's written, I love the, the way that you intersperse each, each chapter with, um, emails that she writes to her mom and dad. Yes. Um, in the, the earlier books, now following you inspire, I established this family as a, a very close family. Um, the three daughters are all grown up and living their own lives, but they are all still very close to their parents and to each other. And Ella's emails to her parents once a week or whatever um, become a kind of commentary on her life. We can see what her parents think about how she's living her life, um, how she refers her decisions to them, um, and just how that family closeness stays there. And I also use it as a, a vehicle, I hope, for humor in the book um, and for connecting the three books. So we see what has happened to the other two sisters, um, Jamie and Caroline, as their lives have also progressed. Yeah, because I really love that part. And and like you say, you can see what they think of, of her life and her decisions, even though we don't see their emails to Ella. We see from her responses what their their feelings are, what their opinions are, and I love that. It's it's a, an amazing vehicle to show her relationship with her parents. And I also loved how she she is attempting to guide her older parents in using technology, not with much success, but she's trying it, and I think that's something that many of us can relate to. Oh, definitely, yes. I think we all know the struggle of um, our senior parents and technology um, and all the various pitfalls and things that can go wrong there. Um, It can often be frustrating but also quite amusing too. It is very amusing. I mean, I had a particular incident yesterday that really made me think of this. <laughs> it made me smile and think that is just, it's so real and people, it's, it's relatable. Um, but speaking about relatable, I mean, how do you think you stay, manage to stay relevant in all the genres that you write? I think the only way I can stay relevant is by being an active reader in all those genres. Only by reading a genre can you really understand what's new, what's interesting, what's topical. And I'm especially a very keen reader of South African fiction, as I know you are too, Janice. I and am. It, it, it really keeps you connected to what's happening in South Africa, what priorities are for different people. Uh, and South African fiction has diversified into many different genres in the last, let's say, 20 to 30 years, which is fantastic. And uh, I'm so enthusiastic about it. I love the fact that our fiction can stand up against the best in the world and that somebody walking into a bookstore would be as likely to choose maybe the latest Dion Mayer um, as some other international thriller writer. Um, Our writers are starting to develop very loyal followings of their own, um, people who are excited for their next book and would pick them up over another international title. And I think that's just such a great development. 
I agree with you 100%. We'll be back after this with a quick wrap-up. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am back and wrapping up with my guest, Fiona Snickers. We have been talking about her book, The School Gates, and I really highly recommend it. It is the perfect book club read, but it is the perfect read for anyone and everyone, any day of the week. Fiona, tell us where and how the book is available. Okay, well, um, it's in all exclusive books at the moment. And also all independent bookstores are stocking it as well. Um, it will shortly be available on Amazon Kindle and maybe in the future an audio book will become available. But that's where you can get it right now. Okay, so are you saying it's not available as an ebook yet, but it will be? It will be in a matter of weeks, yes. That is great news. So I highly recommend it. And um, just before we, we wrap up quickly, what inspires you to keep writing? I mean, apart from, I mean, I know you say you read in all genres, but what inspires you? Almost more of a compulsion than an inspiration. I've been writing since I was a small child. I know that even if I never got published again, I would continue to write stories because my mind is constantly buzzing with characters and plots and stories, and I just have to get them down on paper, even if nobody ever reads them again. It's, it's a kind of compulsion to get these characters and these situations out of my head and onto the page. It's something I'm just going to keep doing for the rest of my life. Um, am I allowed to ask what you're working on right now? Well, um, I have a book that is out on submission to publishers right now, uh, all I can say about it is that it's a cross between domestic noir and an FBI thriller. So that is set in the United States. Um, I'm also working on a new murder mystery right now and a new book of literary fiction, um, perhaps along the same lines of my previous novel, Lacuna. So that's what I've got in the pipeline now. And... Lacuna, you won awards for that. So we have a lot to look forward to by the sound of it. And so, as you say, lots on the go. Um, and, and again, across genres. I mean, you've, you've wrapped up all the, the series that you've written, haven't you? Yes. I, mean, I won't say never. Uh, for example, I might very well write another Trinity book in my young adult series. And in fact, there's a, Trinity short story coming out in a collection called Going Wild quite soon. It's uh, an ecologically themed collection of short stories and at teenagers, and I have a story in that. Um, so I, I won't say never. I, I might very well add to my series, but I'll also be introducing new series in the future. Lots to look forward to. Fiona, it's been fabulous having you as my guest this morning. Thank you so much for giving me your time. Thank you so much, Janice, to you and your listeners. Thank you. And to you listening, like I always tell you, take care of yourself and each other, wear your mask and read a book.